Would you open your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 4? James famously opened his letter by saying, Count it all joy when you fall. Consider it pure joy when you fall into various trials. James goes on to give us a powerful rationale for obeying that command, but you could really view this text, verses 12 through 19 of 1 Peter 4, as an extended explanation of how we can obey that command to rejoice in trial, to rejoice in suffering. Forgive me for hijacking an illustration. I'm going to have to repeat it a little bit because most of you did not hear Dr. Brock give it last week because he preached on Tuesday. But he told about his dad, who was the, who was, uh, the academic dean here for about 25 years, wanting to get his family to grandma, and there was this dry riverbed running between them in the, south, in the desert of California that only ran about once every seven years, but it was flooding that year. But the flood was about over, and it was only about two feet deep. And so Dr. Brock, in a way that I must admire, took his three boys, who were all under 10, and his wife, uh, and said, we're going to cross the river on foot. And so they locked arms, and they made their way across that stream. But it turns out that it was a pretty rushing stream, even at two feet. Uh, one of these desert, uh, str- they needed to hold on, is the point. And they made it. And Dr. Brock got that idea from verse 4 of this chapter where it talks about the excess of riot where literally it's a flood of wickedness. And so we are called to stand against the flow. Turns out that that illustration works perfectly for my text. So I've borrowed it and when I tell it in the future it'll be the Saxon family, don't tell him. (laughs) We're going to have to move to Southern California to make it work, but turns out that our text says, expect suffering. That is, you're about to go into a raging storm, so expect the water to be hard to stand in. Exult in the suffering. There are reasons why you can rejoice as you're passing through it. You will gain intimacy with me in the suffering. You will be identified with me by the suffering. You will survive the suffering, and you need to trust through the suffering. You say, well, Dr. Saxon, that was six points. You're not going to make it. I know. Stay with me. Think of it as three points with two subpoints each, and it'll work better. So verse 12, let's begin there. Beloved, Peter says, you are loved by God. Do not think it a strange thing. Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. So the first thing is that we should expect suffering. We should expect the flow to be going against us. Think it not strange is one word that means to surprise or astonish by the strangeness or novelty of a thing. It's what you feel when a politician keeps his promise. It's what I feel when the Vikings win a playoff game. It's just utter amazement. And Peter says, that should not be our attitude when we step into the stream and the current is strong. We should expect it. That word strange he used back earlier in this chapter. He says, ungodly people will think it strange that you don't go with the flow. That is, 
Look at, how, look at the direction the world is going. Don't you want to be on the right side of history? Do you want to be strange? Our world is against xenophobia, but in fact, they think we're the strangest people ever. But we should not think it's strange when they feel that way. We should not view trials as some alien thing that don't belong in our lives. But you say, but the first word of the verse is, we're beloved. If God loves us, surely he won't let pain in our lives. No, he loves us too much to let us go with the flow. Because you jump on a raft and you ride the current, it goes over a waterfall at the end. You've got to stand against it. Expect suffering. And isn't it easier to deal with things that you expect? I mean, I know students complain every year on day one when we give them a syllabus that lists all the assignments. But isn't that better than every third week or so going, surprise, test? No, you were able to prepare for it because you expected it. Oh, and by the way, service announcement, final exams are May 3 through 5. Just try to be helpful. All right. When you expect something, you can prepare for it. Well, expect pain. Expect a fiery trial. There is a fiery trial coming. Peter brought this up back in chapter 1. This common theme in the Old Testament scriptures that God is testing our faith to show its genuineness. He puts us in the fire so that we can come out as gold. Furthermore, it's a fiery trial. And the word Paul used, Peter uses here, pardon me, suggests pain. It's not just purifying, burning away our dross. It's painful. Your loving Heavenly Father is okay with putting you in situations that hurt. Plan on that. Wrap your mind around that. He's, he, he's planning an eternity for you that is pain-free. How's he getting you ready for that? With the scalpel. All right. He is allowing pain in our lives. And we're, we're, nevertheless, we're always surprised by how much it hurts. But don't be surprised. Fiery trials try us. Why do we need them? Well, I, I, I'd like to preach a whole sermon on this. First Peter says we need them because it shows our faith to be genuine. It's easy to say we believe until we're in the fire. But when the idols are stripped away and I'm relying on Christ alone, then the reality of our faith becomes evident. Secondly, Peter says it's as a testimony to unbelievers. That was our main thrust two weeks ago. Our testimony is strengthened when they see us singing in the fire. And third, in a couple weeks, Dr. Brock's going to preach again over in chapter 5. Well, maybe it's, yeah, it's probably two weeks. He's going to be in chapter 5 about how we are joined to other believers around the world by these sufferings. They're going through the same things we are. That is, the way the Brock family made it through is by being arm in arm. Our fellowship is enriched. Whatever you're going through now, the comfort you're receiving, you can use to comfort others who go through the same stream. So number one, expect suffering. Number two, verse 13, exult, rejoice in suffering. Peter says, but rejoice. Where's he getting that idea? Well, two weeks ago, we saw that Peter remembered vividly the teachings of Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. And Christ, in fact, used this exact word, rejoice. He said, rejoice and be exceeding glad. 
If, as we read on the verse, you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad with, and there's Christ's words again, with exceeding joy. Rejoice with exceeding joy. Peter says, listen, Christ has commanded us to understand our sufferings differently from the way the world understands them. These sufferings are bringing us good purposes. So we should exult in suffering because Christ commands us to. We should also exult because we are partakers of Christ's sufferings. Christ's experience of suffering allows us to exult. One commentator says, their enemies, our enemies, would persecute Christ if he were among them. For it is really he who is the object of their hatred. And therefore, being persecuted themselves, they are partakers of Christ's suffering. Our pain... He bore our infirmities first. He took them all on himself. And our goal should be to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. And third, we can exult in suffering because of Christ's triumph over suffering. I want you to get the logic here in verse 13 because it's unusual logic. Look down at your text. Rejoice inasmuch as you are participants. You are partakers in the sufferings of Christ. In order that, purpose clause, in order that when his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. The logic says you are participating in the sufferings of Christ now. You can rejoice now in order that later when Christ returns in glory, you'll be able to rejoice even more. The Brock kids didn't just rejoice when they got, well, they may have. This is illustration. They didn't just rejoice when they got to the other side of the river. They could rejoice in the middle of the current because their father was with them. They were locked arms with fellow believers. They They were surviving. And that survival, that understanding God's purpose, that acknowledgement of Christ's presence, that clinging to hope, produced a joy in the trial which will culminate in the final joy at the return of Christ. We're building a resume right now of trust, of dependence, of relationship. And it won't be some brand new thing when Christ appears in heaven and we see him. It'll be the culmination of a lifetime of getting to know him better. And you get to know him best when you're hurting, when you're in pain. And that leads us directly to verse 14. So we expect trials, we exult in the trial. We consider it pure joy. If you are reproached, Peter says, for the name of Christ, you're happy because for the Spirit, Holy Spirit, of glory and of God rests on you. On their part, he's evil spoken of. But on your part, He is glorified. So third, suffering leads to intimacy. Suffering builds builds relationship. Now these people Peter's writing to are in a similar situation that we're in. That is, Peter probably wrote this letter around 62, 63. There's Christians in Asia Minor. Systematic Roman persecution is not going to come to Asia Minor for several decades. Mostly, these people are simply going against the flow of their culture. 
And so Peter uses a bunch of words in this letter that indicate verbal abuse. Back in chapter 2, verse 12, we saw a word in which you are being spoken against. The same word is used in 3.16, to speak evil. It's a word that means to slander. They're being slandered by people. In chapter 2, verse 23, we see the word reviled. And in 3.9, it's translated railing. That's a word that means to be insulted by people. Again in 3.16, we read about being falsely accused. Well, that's a word that means to be insulted strongly or molested by people verbally. We get to this text, and we see the word reproached. This is the word Christ used in Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when men shall revile you. They shall reproach you. This is verbal. This is the kind of abuse you and I are likely to get from a culture that thinks we're completely out of touch. Peter says, you're doing this for the name of Christ. A little later, he's going to call us Christians. What a good reason to be insulted. I'm insulted because of the character of Jesus Christ that is being built in me by the Holy Spirit. Forgive this illustration. Honestly, I, I'm sorry about this one. But when I was a little kid, 70s, watching football on television, I decided that, that Chuck Foreman and Alan Page and Fran Tarkenden were my favorite players. I was living in Virginia at the time. It didn't make any sense. But I, I became a Vikings fan. And uh, after they became bad, which is pretty much the last 40 years, I stayed with them. And it's, it's been a life of sanctification. But I didn't know that in 1999, God would pick up this southern boy and drop him down in the middle of Packers country. And so that has led to a certain amount of insult. I remember one occasion I was out playing basketball with the boys in a little park in the middle of our neighborhood, and a car drives by and the people lean out their window. I was wearing a Vikings jersey, and they start screaming insults at me. Now, they didn't know me. Who are they really insulting? The badge I was wearing. That is, it wasn't about me. It was about who I was identified with. Isn't it a wonderful thing when people see you and see Christ, someone that they don't like, someone that they can't tolerate? As we'll see a little later in the text, if we're being insulted and reviled because we're being jerks, that's not the issue. But if we're being like Christ if we're suffering for his name and his character, what could be better than that? So we enjoy relationship with Christ, intimacy with Christ. Look at how Peter puts it. For the spirit of glory and of God, unusual expression, rests upon you. He's probably getting this language from Isaiah 11.2. Isaiah 11.2 says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest on Messiah. Peter, over and over again in this text, wants us to associate our sufferings with the person of Jesus Christ. He has commanded us to suffer. He has experienced suffering himself. He will triumph over suffering. And as we suffer, we come into closer and closer intimacy with him. His spirit rests on us. Intimacy. We enjoy relationship. Samuel Rutherford, a Scottish preacher, was banished from his church and was living in exile. And one of his church members wrote to him and said, you know, I am so sick, God must be judging me. And Rutherford tried to encourage him that, you know, I don't know whether you're being chastened or not, but, quote, whether God come to his children with a rod or a crown, 
If he come with it, it is well. Welcome, welcome, Jesus, what way soever thou come, if we can get a sight of thee. And sure I am, it is better to be sick, providing Christ come to the bedside and draw aside the curtains and say, Courage, I am thy salvation, than to enjoy health and never to be visited of God. Do you want that intimacy? Do you want that relationship? It is pain that drives us into his arms. And then there's identity. I've already suggested this, but let's continue on to verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer. All right, well, he said that back in my previous sermon. He said, listen, there are reasons to suffer and there are reasons not to suffer. Don't suffer because you're being a sinner just like people in the world. That is, if you're going with the tide... The fact that you'll bump into a rock every once in a while, don't say you're suffering for Christ. So we could suffer for the wrong reasons. Peter seems to have a particular wrong reason in mind, though. In many Greek texts, the word as comes before murderer, thief, or evildoer, and then is repeated before the fourth one. Unusual Greek word. In fact, this is the only place it's used in the New Testament. Or as a busybody... In other men's matters. As a busybody in other men's matters. The idea here is somebody who is just sticking his nose where it's not appreciated. Who's just tactless and rude and unkind. And it's easy to see how believers in this pagan culture could say, hey, I'm going to stand against the flow even if I suffer for it. And then they proceed to stand against the flow by being obnoxious. Now, frankly, you and I probably struggle most to open our mouths when we keep them quiet. So we may not need this reminder. Truth of the matter is, though, that there are times when we can think we're speaking for Christ when we're just being rude, when we're being awkward, when we're being unkind. We had a, I, I was present in a church service. I won't say more about the place or time or anything else. But a, a guest speaker came and boasted that in Germany, where he was a missionary, he went into all the stores that had signs posted, no soliciting, no literature, and he snuck around hiding tracks in places all over the store because he was going to proclaim the name of Christ even if he got arrested for it. Well, he deserved to be arrested. And when he got arrested, he would not be reflecting Christ very well. So we are suffering, but not for the wrong reasons. Instead, we are suffering for the right reason. And it's right there in verse 16. Yet any man suffer as a Christian. That word's not used very often in the New Testament. In fact, only three times. It was originally used when Christians first got to Antioch. And the Gentiles looked at them and said, man, these people are different. They're, they're like Jesus Christ. You know, that guy that... Pontius Pilate killed. And now 30 years later, Peter's saying, don't you love that title? Don't you love being identified as a follower of Christ? Faithfulness for Christ led to friction. It will lead to friction for us. And we also need to suffer in the right way. Latter part of verse 16. If you suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God on his behalf. 
You know, the natural response to being vilified and insulted is shame, being embarrassed. No one wants to be ostracized. No one wants to be cut off. No one, nobody wants to be the one person at your workplace that nobody else appreciates. And so when we are going against the flow, the tendency might be to fail to speak up for Christ when we have opportunity. I want to avoid the ridicule. We might adjust our faith to fit into the currents of the age to avoid the ridicule. We might apostatize. You know, I've taught young people who sat where you're sitting, who attended my classes, who I did marriage counseling for. When they got out in the world, the current was strong, and they ultimately went with the flow and and have abandoned Christ. Now, I'm not judging their hearts before the day, but at least right now, it appears that they were never saved. The believer must not. This is a command. Do not be ashamed to stand. God is with you. Instead, glorify God. What does it mean to glorify God? Well, this could be subjective. Praise God in the middle of the storm. Praise God in the fire. Praise God as the stream is rushing around you that he is strengthening you. I know the illustration is getting ridiculous at this point, but if I was one of those brat boys, I would say, man, my dad is awesome. If it wasn't for him, I'd be getting swept away right now. You never probably got to meet Dr. Brock. He was a big man in every sense of the word. And he held his family there in the middle of that stream. But glorifying God probably here is objective. Stand in such a way that others people say, wow, their God is great. That we should be to the praise of his glory. We show by our lips and our life that we value Christ more than anything in this world that gets swept away. So believers expect suffering. They can, in amazing ways, exult in the middle of the suffering. Why? Because we are finding intimacy with Christ and we are identified with him. But the text takes a surprising turn in verse 17. For the time has come, Peter writes, that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin with us, the house of God being the household of believers, the household of faith, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God. You say, what in the world is Peter doing here? Well, that word judgment is not a word that means condemnation. There's another word that would have made that much clearer. Instead, it's a word that talks about assessment, rendering a verdict, evaluation. As the waters rush through, some stand. Others are swept along. And when God's judgment comes, some will stand and some will be swept away. The fire of judgment that purifies believers will consume unbelievers. And he says that judgment has begun with us. So look at what Peter's doing here. He's saying, one day, God will assess all, and he will judge unbelievers by consigning them to the ultimate suffering, the fires of hell forever. Believers will be vindicated. They will be rescued. But the fires are already burning. So the suffering we're going through, 
is God's way of purifying to himself a people. And the outcomes will be evident. Right now, unbelievers get cancer, we get cancer. Unbelievers suffer, we suffer. There's a sense in which this world, the wheat and the tares are all growing together. But picture bars of brass and a pile of hay. Set fire to it and what's left. God says, when that judgment is complete, it'll all be clear. So the judgment has begun, that critique has begun among us, suggesting that our reality once again is demonstrated that we obey the gospel of God in that we are purified by the fire and not consumed by it. He quotes Proverbs eleven thirty one and verse 18. And I want you to get the promise in this verse. If the righteous scarcely be saved. All right, that word scarcely, at first glance, it looks like it might mean barely. We get through by the skin of our teeth. I don't think that's what's going on here. That word means with difficulty. That is, you don't walk through the flow, you don't stand in that torrent easily. It's challenging. Hebert says the expression, scarcely, relates to the arduous experiences of the righteous in this life and does not imply doubt as to whether it will be saved in the end. So the emphasis is not on your barely getting through, but on that despite the difficulty, you will get through. The righteous will be saved no matter how hard it is but not the unrighteous. Peter asked this wrenching rhetorical question. If righteous people get through really, really hard times, what's going to happen to the ungodly and the sinner? Men and women, being a student at Maranatha does not guarantee that you are the righteous. You've got to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This whole text is about how trials bring good things to believers and therefore we can expect them and exult in them and have innocent identification. But if you're an unbeliever, when the fire burns, it's just a prelude. Much worse fire is coming. Where, I mean, if the righteous barely make it through, what's going to happen to the unrighteous? By the way, fellow believer, this is, re- this is reminding us of the plight of those around us. It, it's, there's an implied evangelistic imperative here. But we will survive. The trial will not destroy you. Dr. Brock no doubt told his kids, we're going to get through the stream. <laughs> now, he couldn't guarantee it, and I'm amazed that he took his kids into that water. But our Heavenly Father guarantees it. Look at 19 as we close. We will survive. We must trust. Wherefore, we get a one-verse summary of Peter's entire theology of suffering. Let them that suffer. What are those next words? You're suffering according to what? The will of God. The will of God. No better comfort in suffering can be found than this. It is God's good and perfect will, Grudem writes. 
For therein lies the knowledge that there is a limit to the suffering, both in its intensity and its duration, a limit set and maintained by the God who is our creator, our savior, our sustainer, our father, and therein also lies the knowledge that this suffering is only for our good. We suffer in the will of God. We commit the keeping of our souls to him as our faithful creator. That word commit, Jesus Christ set the example He committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Hanging on a cross, experienced the ultimate suffering. He said, Father, into thy hands I commit. Same exact word is here. Myself into your hands. And when we are in the fire, our faithful creator is there with us. He doesn't send us and say, good luck. He He enters, preserves, and sustains And my time is gone, but I could quote numerous testimonies from people in church history who said, man, he was with me in the fire. So entrust yourselves to that God and keep on keeping on. Notice he says, in well-doing. In well-doing means, and keep on doing good. That is, don't stop because you're in pain. It's when you're in pain that you have the greatest opportunities that are afforded to us. This morning, I heard a testimony that I have to tell you before I close. We've been praying for several years for Peter Nanke, the husband of one of our graduates, Shelby Bowman. And uh, he's got kidney disease and needs a transplant. But yesterday, he told his family, pray for Jasmine. She's his nurse. And she's sharing the gospel with her. And he wants to see her saved. He said, in fact, stop praying that I'll get a new kidney. Pray that Jasmine will get saved before I get a new kidney. Why? Because he's in the fire. But that's the opportunity that God gives us. We can trust because our suffering has a purpose. And God is with us. So I don't know what you're going through. Well, I know some of what you're going through. I'm causing some of it. (laughs) But you can expect suffering if you're a believer. You can rejoice. You can exult in it. It's a foretaste of better things. You are getting to know God better when you hurt. You are identified with Christ who hurt for us. You will survive. Oh, not on this earth but you will survive the fires of judgment. So entrust yourself to him. He is faithful and will never leave you or forsake you. Thank you, Lord, for this text. Lord, we find these suffering passages to be easy preaching hard living because we can talk about pain, but it hurts to hurt. I pray that this theology would sink deep into our hearts so that we could consider it pure joy when we fall into various trials. And I pray these things in the name of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.